Okay. The, um, uh, well, so last week, Pastor Beeks mentioned uh, next week is going to be movie time, performance time, right? Okay. I, I will, we'll try to get through Mark 16. It's, very, it's only eight verses, the original earliest manuscript, so um, we're going to focus on Mark 15, okay? The, um, I have a little hand out there. Uh, so a couple of things I, I just wanted to think about today as we kind of read Mark 15, or not read it, look at it, is, um, you know, making sense of death and looking for how Christ's, uh, his promises, like, work. But work in a way. So we're going to work on our eyes and our ears today, because in Mark things are right in front of people's faces, but they don't have eyes to see it or ears to hear it, which is resonates with earlier in the Gospel of Mark, uh, Mark chapter four, I believe, three or four, where um, when Jesus speaks in parables, he you know he quotes the the Old Testament that they might have eyes. Uh, but they won't see, even though they have ears, they won't hear. And then we see this kind of abundantly in the crucifixion scene, culmination of the crucifixion scene. All right, great. Um, uh, so there's a lot of things happening in the crucifixion. One is, um, well, here, I have a little chart here uh, as it starts out. So we have Mark 15, 24, and then 15, 29 through 32. And on the, that's on the left side. And then on the right side, I just include uh, verses from Psalm 22. And Psalm 22 is, is the psalm that we recite um, on Monday, Thursday, at the end of the service as we enter into Good Friday. And that, this is really important because even though Psalm 22, it's only the first verse that's recited by Jesus from the cross... The, the story of the crucifixion follows Psalm 22. I mean, so Psalm 22, in a sense, provides the outline for how we understand the crucifixion. And uh, so, you know, take a look at those verses. So they, they, you can see how um, when Mark wrote the, the, you know, wrote the gospel, he, of course, wasn't just, you know, he had, he had some Old Testament readings to help them make sense of it. And that's, impor- that, that's important for us to, to remember. How does the Bible m- help us make sense of the world? Or how, um, h- where do we look for meaning? Do we look for meaning in the world? Or do we actually look, look for meaning in Scripture? And that so is our world uh, purely our material, like a materialistic uh, instance? So like seeing the eyes or looking with the eyes of, of our bodies or the eyes of faith? And when I say it that way, of course, we're going to say the eyes of faith. But how, how, how does that, um, how do we see that in the Gospel of Mark? Okay, great. So one of the ways we see this is because uh, we can talk a lot about like how people are crucified. Um, I just want to focus on one aspect of it. If you have any questions about it, feel free to ask them. Um, 
was uh, the Romans, Romans used irony. So it wasn't, uh, execution wasn't necessarily just um, getting someone, you know, getting someone dead. Um, there was a whole rigmarole to the execution. And, and irony was often used, used with it. And when they executed someone, oftentimes the way they executed it mimicked their charges, the charges against them. So we see this in the crucifixion. Um, so when, we, we, when the Gospels point about um, Jesus having a crown of thorns, wearing robe, uh, the, like purple robes, when they uh, talk about the, the Roman centur- uh, the Roman soldiers, you know, bowing down in front of him, um, and then even just the carrying of the cross, that's a that's a procession, that's a royal procession. Processions in, um, I think I can't remember if we talked about this before, but in Rome, there's the uh, arch. I'm a brain freeze right now. Yeah, it is Archititus. Thank you. It doesn't seem right. Thank you. Yeah, the Archititus, which was uh, created for Titus when he came back from actually the Holy Lands. You know, they had this big parade. So I think uh, the thing that we might be able to picture what, you know, people doing this would be maybe a parade. But back in those days, the procession was a. You had it when someone entered into the town. So like if an emperor were to enter into a city, um, he would enter into all this pomp and circumstance. And then he usually would go to his, his you know, royal house, you know, where he would sit on a, on a throne. Um, we see this in the triumphal entry of Jesus. I can't remember... He comes into town, right, the big procession, and then where does he go? goes right into the temple. Uh, well, obviously he <laughs> kind of clears house when he goes into the temple. But that whole, that whole scenario, again, is to conjure up images of uh, rulership, kingship. Okay, great. So, so when the crucifixion is, you know, executed... They are actually doing all these things on purpose to actually make fun of the criminal, Jesus particularly. In fact, uh, well, yeah, so we'll see that. So um, in, in the gospel text, Jesus is never called king until he stands before Pilate. So the, the standing before the council of the Sanhedrin, Jesus' big charge wasn't necessarily he was the king of Jews, but what was he? He was the Messiah or, or Son of God, right? But when he comes in front of Pilate, the big charge, I mean, he, Pilate doesn't care about any of that. Messiah, Son of God business. He's more interested in finding out whether Jesus is making a statement about the emperor, so the king of Jews. So he goes before Pilate, and he's never been called king, but then from then he's called it six times, which is, I mean, it's a lot of usage, very redundant. So, by the time Jesus is hung on the cross, and you see the title or the, the charge against him, which is, you know, above his head, uh, you're like, okay, we got the picture. I mean, yes, we got it. So the Bible kind of reiterates things over and over again. All right, great. Um, so not only is this a charge, but actually this is a joke. 
So um, it's not in the Gospel of Mark, but in the other Gospels, you know, the, the Jewish leaders kind of get upset about this. Don't write that up there. And Pilate's like, I wrote what I wrote. Well, we kind of see it as a kind of a, like a fight of authority, right? Hey, who's in charge here? Is Pilate in charge or are the Jews in charge? Well, actually, um, Pilate would take it down anyways because it's a good joke. It's funny. It's supposed to be funny. Because everybody knows what? He can't be the king of Jews because he's sitting on a cross. But at the same time, the, they, they actually would put... So, um, you know, they only put certain kind of people on the cross, too. So the robbers, right? The, 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 he's, um, I can't remember actually how Mark... He's, uh, they're rabble-rousers, people who create you know, unrest. The, uh, or insurrectionists, and then obviously people, rebels. I mean, these are the people who get crucified. Um, uh, robbers isn't like, you know, I try to, I try to like, you know, rob the 7-Eleven. That's not the kind of robber that's hanging on the cross in this instance. It's the one that upsets society, that would turn the world upside down by their robbery. So, you know, we're talking like, uh, you know, somebody who, you know, hacks into banks or something like this. You know, this is not just a normal robber in a sense. In fact, the word robber, uh, there's a lot of irony in the word robber. Because it's mentioned earlier, robbery. Another king scene, although it's not called a king scene. When is, when, when's the word robbery used besides the two robbers? To test your knowledge here. Jesus actually makes reference to robbers. When he goes into the temple, what does he call that place? Yeah, den of robbers. I, I think, you know, I should actually look. I mean, it's trans, it can be translated in a variety of ways here. I should actually have looked that up before I started talking about that. Is it Denethes in in the ESV here? Yeah, in the ESV, Mark 11, 17, they use the word robbers. Thieves, robbers, it's the same thing. But it should be the same word when it talks about the the two guys next to him. That's important. Because... Jesus charges those who are running the place, right, of being robbers, and now he's hung on a cross with the same charge. What's interesting about that is that he's, this is important for us because he's taking on all the sins of the world. Unless we think there's some people outside the salvation of Jesus, like those bad people over there in the temple who are selfish and hip- hypocritical, Jesus is actually taking their sins on too. <laughs> this is really important, and so that that that's 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 a that's another, I think, very very poetic thing that Mark does. Is that he uses these words that we can be very quick to kind of put people into a box, but Jesus then takes it upon himself in the crucifixion. So very powerful. In fact. So he's taking on this royal, royal position, 
So he's even taking on the sins of the emperors or the royalty. Yeah, Kathy. Uh, in John, uh, Jesus was talking about, I guess, the previous leaders, religious leaders, and or prophets, or maybe he said all that came before me were thieves and robbers. He said, he said um, but he, uh, all, all that came before me were thieves and robbers. But I'm like the real guy. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, no, no, that, um, so this is uh, important for us is that um, when we, there's two things going on in your question. One is uh, making sure we keep boundaries with the stories of the Gospels. I think I've said this before, when Mark wrote his Gospel, he didn't think, oh, hey, the only way you can understand this is if you have the other Gospels. So he's writing a self-contained story. So in John... What's going on is, is within the story of John, but there are similarities because we're talking about Jesus. So, of course, there's going to be connections. And, and so, yeah, you're making this connection that the fact is, is how each gospel articulates the unconditionalness or the power or the vastness of grace is done in each of their own specific sort of ways. Okay? So, Jesus in Mark is demonstrating how the salvation of the world, there's, there's no place and no one that's not touched by the crucifixion of Jesus. And so we're seeing all these other connections. In fact, I didn't bring this up, but now I'm thinking about this. So um, even the crucifixion is understood in terms of a new creation. So anything in the old creation is touched by Jesus, okay? So that means all sinners are touched by the crucifixion of Jesus, and Jesus is now the firstborn of the new creation. So, of course, now uh, Jesus dies on Good Friday, sixth day. The seventh day is the Sabbath rest, right? Um... This is important for us because uh, the word Sabbath can mean a lot of things. One is rest, um, and most of us will think that it means the stopping of things or stop doing things. But, of course, that can't happen when you talk to God, right? Because, I mean, what happens when, if God stops doing things? We're annihilated. So God can't, I mean, he, we don't want God to stop doing things. So the word rest in Sabbath takes on a different connotation. And that word for rest actually is a word often used when king... I think I might have said this before. I just did this in confirmation, so I'm like conflating things here. Um, is when the king sits down on his throne. The word is he rests on his throne. So um, at the end of creation, what does, Jesus, what does God do? He, he sits on his throne. He's, he, he's resting, but when, he, when the king sits on his throne, we all know that he's ruling. That's the place of ruling. So, now, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus dies on the sixth day, but when he dies, he's actually, so this is something, too, about crucifixion, the word sedalia. It means royal chair. But, 
in, a, in a, an ironic sense, some crosses are fitted with a pole, like or like a stub or something, and they called it the sedalia. So where the guy is crucified, he can maybe kind of push his butt up against it and get a little relief. And so this chair, so again, they're being irony, ironic, right? Oh, he's a, he's a king and he's sitting on his throne. Right, he's making, they're making fun of him. But the point of me bringing up this irony business is that Jesus, uh, it's the irony of ironies. It's the refusal of refusals with Jesus on the crucifixion. Is that Jesus has the last word, but when we understand the crucifixion in terms of Psalm 22, we actually realize that Jesus has already had the first word. And that when we think about Jesus understanding, or God speaking about this beforehand, and then making sense of it on the, the end, the, 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 the beginning and the end, we realize that God has already been orchestrating this the whole time. And that he is, his plan is pervasive. But what we find out, though, is that there's, there are, people are not getting it. But I want to go back, I just want to finish the creation bit, <laughs> is that, um, so God from the creation has had this all in the works. And so when he tells the story of Jesus, in the background is, is creation. There's a, there's a creation going on here. But how is it happening? It's happening, it's happening through the death of, of, of Jesus. So that the, the, um, so when he sits on his throne in the sedalia, and then obviously when he actually rests on the Sabbath day, that's Saturday, he's resting precisely in the tomb. So he's ruling the universe from death. And then, of course, so the image that we all think about when he rules the world from his heavenly throne. There is not a point of reality for humanity where Jesus isn't involved as king of the universe. Uh, Aaron. Uh, uh, I, I, was looking, I was looking for something, and I came across it in Mark 8, where Jesus is foretelling his death. Yep. And he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And I think that always just like, it's like, oh yeah, yeah, it would be a shameful thing. For, I mean, first of all, I mean, there's a variety of things. Yeah, I mean, shocking insofar as they're like, yeah, that makes no sense, right? So when you're taking up your cross, you're, um, you, well, crucifixion, again, was the worst kind of, of death. In fact, um, there's not a great detailed description of crucifixions. Because it was known in the Roman world as being so horrific, you wouldn't even want to write about it. So uh, in, 1980, in the 1980s, there were some doc, medical doctors who wrote on the crucifixion. That was all hypothetical, meaning like they didn't, it wasn't from historical writing. A little bit. But, um, you know, I mean, it's, I mean, the most detailed, actually, description of the crucifixion is actually in the, in the Gospels, the New Testament. <laughs> that interesting? So, so taking up your cross to follow Jesus, 
So, so the doctors in the 1980s, it's actually a very interesting thing, and I'm sure you can find it. There's a book, there's a, I can't remember the name of the book, but um, these doctors will kind of go through how someone would have died and kind of just the horrendousness of it all. Um, but, but for those first readers, when they have read, take up your cross and follow me, um, there's so many dissonances in people's ears. One would be just kind of the shame of it, People are crucified. That is a shameful thing. So to take up your cross is to enter into some sort of shameful act, in a sense. Then, of course, is just the pain of it. I mean, the death of it, right? So again, how, do, how can I follow somebody if I'm dead? But of course, that, that's purely from a materialistic understanding of what the crucifixion is. But Jesus, when Jesus gets crucified then, he, he flips the script. And what the world sees as this shameful thing now is actually a, 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 an honor. What sees as this uh, time of suffering is still obviously painful, but it's not suffering unto death. Suffering unto the resurrection. So when Jesus says, you've got to take up your cross and follow me, that only will make sense in light of the resurrection. Or, I mean, that's within the Gospel of Mark, but we would see it in light of Pentecost or the Holy Spirit indwelling us. Um, so, so then, so people w- with the um, eyes opened by the power of God and the Holy Spirit then is able to see the crucifixion as it really is, and understand how God actually uses irony against the irony. So it's like a double negative, which means it's positive, right? So when, when Jesus says, I, or when God says, I'm going to tell this story, I'm not going to be ashamed of it, because it actually speaks the truth. It disengages then any sort of shame. There's no longer any shame for a Christian to talk about the crucifixion. You're set free from it which, of course, is, you know, it's gospel. Um, then, also on top of that, even within the gospel of Mark, I think this is an outline. So Jesus dies. Now, he, he has a great cry. Which, for in the crucifixion, that's unusual. Because when you die, it, there's two reasons that you die from crucifixion. One is just from, like, loss of blood, and the other one, the main one, is, a, is asphyxiation. You, you know, can't breathe. And that's why the sedalia was put there, so you could sit and breathe a little bit, which would mean your death would be really long. Days. You'd be hanging. And um, loss of blood wouldn't be just from nails. Does anyone know what else would happen on people, uh, with people on the crucifixion? Uh, you actually see a, a little bit of it in the Passion of the Christ when the guy mocks Jesus from the cross and then something comes by. and you know, I can't remember if we showed that. The crow, the crow comes by, right? And that actually would happen. So birds would come and nip on the, body, the, the people dying. And then there's stories, too, of dogs coming and actually eating, I mean, like, gnawing on people. So if you didn't die from that, you would die from not being able to breathe. And, and um, as a crown, 
um, the, the, the Dobson, we had one time the, that the crowns, they were just just in his head, and it starts and bleeding, and it, and they came. Um, so that was that was a kind of uh, terrible pain. Too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, all all that stuff was to inflict pain and, and shame. So, um, anyways, so the, the the whole point though is that when you enter into this, so everything is flipped into the irony of ironies, and um, so you you know the sedalia becomes now not a sense of shame but the royal throne, and and the death of Jesus. Oh, so the centurion, Roman centurion. Okay, great. So Jesus dies, lays out a big cry, and then the Roman centurion says, when he. You saw how he died in this way? Um, you know, we never really think about that. But if we knew, if we understood what crucifixions meant, people don't, you can't give a loud cry when you have no breath. So the fact that Jesus gives a loud cry means, actually, that's unusual. So um, there is a... Um, well, okay, we know the story. So when Jesus quotes Psalm 22, verse 1, you know, Eli, Eli, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, he's saying, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? Who do, but who do the people think he's calling out to? Elijah. That's, that's important for us to realize is that they, st- they can't, they don't get it. They don't have ears to hear. Okay. So he's crying out to God, and when Jesus gives out a loud cry in a circumstance when you shouldn't be able to cry out, the Roman centurion understands that as a supernatural act. On top of that, though, is what we see in Amos, the darkness. So the Roman centurion probably is already freaking out when... You know, it's in the middle of the day. From 12 to 3, it's dark out. So the, the Roman centurion probably is already, the, the groundwork is being laid for him to say, this, this, something is not right here, and this is, this is scary. And then when he cries out that way, that, that can only be by the act of God. Then there's even more. Because then the temple is torn, and immediately the centurion says, truly this man was the son of God. Now, people have asked whether he would have been able to, so there's a discussion about which, so in the temple there's two veils, one on the outer court, one in the Holy of Holies, and there's all this debate about which one it is. You know, if I had to choose, it'd probably be the Holy of Holies, the inner one, which means then the centurion couldn't see it. So there's this debate, like, because, um, you know, there's all these theories about where exactly Golgotha is and how they, could you see the temple? I don't think Mark is really interested in all those historical facts as much as to say the temple has torn, and now when the temple has torn, we can understand that in a variety of ways. But one of them is, God's no longer in there, but he's popping out. He's coming out. 
And who does he go and visit right away? The Roman centurion. And he's the first one. So, so this, there's this, all this story that's going on. So the gospel is being proclaimed, not in words, but in the darkness, and Jesus' death, and the temple's torn, and he confesses Jesus to be the Son of God. Um, so that transforms all that. That goes back to your Aaron's question. So take up your cross and follow me is so all-encompassing. Transforms the way we see reality. Transforms how we understand our lives. To the extent that, for, that we, we will not be surprised when, when people, like even though we say, Jesus loves you, they hear something completely different. Like when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And people hear Elijah, this discussion of Elijah. At this point in the Gospel of Mark, we should all know that makes no sense because Elijah has already come and Jesus has already said that. Elijah has come in John the Baptist. John the Baptist is Elijah come again. But um, again, so... They still, they see the salvation in front of them, but yet they don't, they don't see it. So that's, uh, that's really important, obviously, for the, the gospel. Mark, first, the first community who's hearing this when they're all being arrested and tried and put to death, they need something to help make them make sense of any, everything. And it's, it's Jesus' crucifixion that helps them do this. Um, and I think that's really important for us because when we feel ashamed, uh, you know, for, for whatever reason, Jesus has already said, I, I, I shame the shame, you know, in, in my death, my crucifixion. So we have no more fear. We, have, we are without shame now. Of course, not shamelessness, but... Without shame. Yeah, Aaron. I guess that's something that's, that's really helpful. The way you talked about it, and you look back at that phrase, take up your cross and follow me. And I think I always, without thinking about it, as he said this before, I think I always thought of it like, it's, you know how people say, like, oh, this is my cross to bear. Right. It's sort of this simplistic, like, you know, we gotta go through tough things and just deal with it. Yeah. And it's like, it's yeah oh absolutely yeah well I mean the thing is is that it's hard so I mean that's the one thing when they say you know oh it's my cross to bear meaning it's hard yeah that's true absolutely I mean it's hard but if we only understood the crucifixion in terms of like yeah we just got to be strong enough to get through it that would then devoid meaning of of the actual thing itself meaning it has no whatever struggle we go through really has no meaning. I just got to get through it. But what Jesus actually does is that he gives meaning in the struggle. Like this thing that's happening to me right now has meaning. Not necessarily the meaning we're all looking for. Glory. I mean, you know, meaning of like this, uh, you know, there's going to be some great outcome out of this. But see, even me saying that, I discredit myself because there will be a great outcome of this. Because <laughs> Jesus' death 
even though it's he's utterly abandoned, right? I mean, uh, his disciples aren't around. The women who were faithful to him are, they're not close. They're, they stand far away. And then, of course, then God himself. So this is a terrible, I mean, this is a terrible circumstance to be in. But the fact that Jesus is telling this, or God's telling us this, and living this, then actually gives meaning to the struggle that we have. But we won't be vindicated of this until after death. So it's, it's not, Jesus doesn't get any sort of like, hey man, don't worry about it. It's going to be okay. It's, it, he's, it's, this, it's complete trust without any sort of, in his mind, in, and this is real honestly in Mark, the only guarantee he has is a word. Now that word, though, is from Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a, is a psalm of lament, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then it ends in this acknowledgement that, but I trust in you. So the fact, though, in Mark, there's no quote of that last part. There's no quote in that. It's just the, it's the abandonment part that's only quoted instructs how to the degree to which Jesus is abandoned and how, the, how um, pervasive the trust has to be on the other side of the resurrection. I mean, on death. I mean, other side of, the, of death. So that's really, uh, um, again, that, that's instructive for us is that when we do suffer, and we suffer as, you know, Jesus suffers, uh, he doesn't suffer because he sinned. And a lot of times we, 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 we experience pain, which we misunderstand as suffering, but it's usually just consequences, right? <laughs> I mean, we make choices that are not, good, not the right choice, and we suffer consequences, and we think the consequences only need to be this much, and then they turn out to be this much. And we think the difference is suffering. But in fact, it's just that you're just actually suffering the consequences. <laughs> suffering the consequences. And that's where, that's a whole other different issue going on. And that could be another Bible study. But the difference between what we think should be our suffering or our cons- pain of consequences and the actual pain of the consequences is that difference is the the acknowledgement that I have sinned, so I say I'm sorry, and I receive forgiveness. And the difference between, you know, the real pain of the consequences is we have to keep telling ourselves, God is not um, punishing me more than I deserve. <laughs> but we're actually, we're actually learning the actual severity of the consequences. That's what, I mean, that's it's super hard. So that's why we have to keep saying to ourselves, because the devil will use that against us and say, maybe you didn't really mean it, so you, got a better, you better maybe ask for forgiveness again, which creates mistrust in God's forgiveness. And then you start looking at to yourself about how, you know, did you, did you actually mean it? Or do I have to do something? Then it'll stop. When in fact, it, it's just it's the gravity of the consequences, and we don't always 
know the gravity of the consequences. I mean, this is very easily seen in kids. I mean, come to confirmation, come to confirmation when there's food involved. And the fact that they have to clean up after themselves. I, you know, Mary and Holly, they, they do a better job of holding my, the children accountable than I am. Um, but when they think, hey, we're just having a great time eating, and then all of a sudden there's you know, a big stain in the carpet, and you've got to make them clean it up, they're like, ah. Oh. And so they clean it up, right? They, they clean it up. <laughs> they think they clean it up. And then we're like, no, you've got to do more. They're like, ah. That's a microcosm of things that happen in our life when we make some bad choices and we think we, we've cleaned it up and then it keeps going and it could last for a couple of years or longer. Um, yeah. Okay. Anyways, that's beside the way. So Jesus suffers and uh, helps us with our own suffering because he actually penetrates our life and, and then gives us, you know, this meaning to it. And, and Psalm 22 is really helpful for us, but the entire Gospel of Mark starts this way. In Mark chapter 1, verses uh, two, 1 and 2, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ according to Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. So the story of Jesus already starts in the Old Testament. And then as we read more of Mark, we see that it's not just Isaiah, but it's all the Psalms. In fact, I only use Psalm 22 here but there, oh, I, I'm sorry, I also put Psalm 38. There's Psalm 69, um, could be used to help us understand the crucifixion. Um, all this is, is really helpful for us because the, um, the God, God, when he writes the Old Testament, he's helping us make sense of our world now. The other thing, too, is what are Psalms? If you describe, like, what's, what's a Psalm? Yeah, what is that? I mean, it's a book of the Bible. It's prayer and songs. Okay, so how does Jesus decide, to, or how does God decide to tell about his death? By using Psalm 22, which is precisely a prayer and a song. Now, if you grow up in the evangelical world, we call that praise and worship. So Jesus' death now is what? He, it's a prayer. It's a form of worship. So that's why Psalm 22 is so powerful for us, and we have to keep that in mind, because then his death is offered up as a prayer. A prayer of thanksgiving, of Eucharist, of sacrifice. I will offer the sacrifice of prayer. So... Um, which again, that could be a whole other Bible study, how the crucifixion transforms our understanding of prayer. Okay, but I just wanted to get that point, is that when Psalm 22 is used in the background of the crucifixion, um, it's, it's, the two main reasons are, it helps us understand that what's happening to our lives, it's not as if it hasn't been discussed before. I don't know if you, you feel that sometimes, you're like you're, you're the only, only one in the world that this circumstance has ever happened to. Or the first one that's ever happened to? Well, that's not true because your circumstance, whatever's happened to you, has actually been written about in, in, in the Bible. <laughs> so that means then you enter into this time of your life knowing or having trust that actually someone can actually help me through it, which means then you have to put yourself under that authority 
you don't get to dictate how things work out. But at the same time, then you can enter into that prayerfully. And then also, too, then that goes to the next part of Psalm 22, is that Jesus' crucifixion is a prayer and a song, um, which then means you can have joy in the midst of suffering. Not happiness, because I mean, he's, he's crying out to God. and He's not happy, but there's joy in the midst of it. Okay, um, now let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the. Any questions so far? I mean, I kind of rambled a little bit there, but um, the temple being torn. I think a lot of us have heard about like, hey, it's torn from the top to the bottom, so that means Jesus, God. There's no longer a barrier between God and man. That's true, but there's more to it than just that. But that, that's really important. That's that's the main emphasis. I already mentioned one is that it's relevatory, meaning that now not only is there no barrier, but God has actually what? It's not like he stays over on his side and you're you're on your side and now you gotta kinda it's okay now to cross, right? He doesn't wait for you. He goes out. From the get go. Centurion's already a Christian, believing that Jesus is who he is. And then what happens right after this? He's buried, but who, who, who reaches out to bury him? Joseph of Arimathea, who we know is part of the Sanhedrin. What did the Sanhedrin do last chapter? Again, keep it within the Gospel of Mark. Joseph, according to the Gospel of Mark, has condemned Jesus to death. But now he understands what it means to seek the kingdom of God through Jesus. Jesus' death has now revealed to the fact that that is, that is how I enter into the kingdom of God. So you have a Gentile confess Jesus who he is, and then you have the religious leader who, through the Gospel of Mark, have been terrible people, right? So in a sense, the worst sinners... In the Gospel of Mark, have now become the first confessors. <laughs> Isn't that great? I mean, I think it's so that's so powerful. Is that the Gospel has worked on the, the Gentile? For so for the Jewish audience, I'd be like, what? But then they're like, oh yeah, wait a second. The Old Testament talks about the Gentiles coming to the holy mountain. Then, for maybe the self the self righteous, you know, hey, I'm a pretty good person. And those hypocrites over there, then they're like, what? Joseph O'Meara, he's not supposed to be one of the first guys. He was, he was part of the bad guys. He's part of the bad guys. Um, so, but of course, you know, we get from the Gospel of John, right? Joseph O'Meara is one of the righteous ones, if you know what I mean. Same with um, Nicodemus. But Mark, so Mark is really, the whole point is not to tell the story about Joseph Arimathea, but to tell the, the power of the Gospel, so it's not, it's not contradictory. Joseph of Marathia was part of the Sanhedrin. Who did condemn Jesus? Okay, so he's part of that group. So he is guilty by association. Even though personally he might not have uh, voted for that. As all the Jesus movies, right? They have, a, you know, they have this kind of 
I don't know if that actually worked that way. But um, okay, that's beside the point. All right, so now, so, so the temple being torn, this power of God coming out works in a very powerful way with um, the Gentile and now the hypocrite, believing Jesus to be his. And how we know Jesus, Joseph Emerithia is now um, uh, a Christian is because in order to talk to Pilate, what, happen, what has to happen to him? So, uh, I don't know if I wrote it in there. So you might have to open your Bible. God forbid. Um, okay. Um, uh, verse 15, verse 43, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So this is a public acknowledgement, not only to Pilate, but to the council that I believe Jesus to be who he is. Okay? So, yeah. That, uh, verse, and so within that, though, too, is where do you look for the kingdom of God according to this verse? Yeah, but not Jesus more precisely. Jesus' dead body. Okay, that, that's important for us here because then it kind of shows the radical, kind of the radical nature of God's grace, that even even Jesus' dead body is a revelation of what the gospel is, or the, or the kingdom of God, how God reigns, R-E-I-G-N, reigns. Um, okay, great. So the temple is torn. Uh, centurion confesses. Joseph of Arimathea, Arimathea confesses. So you're like, holy smokes, this is really, it's like a tidal wave happening. All right? Great. Now, the other thing is, is that, um, and this is, I think is a very a kind of lovely image, is uh, the temple being torn is a sign of uh, ang- anguish. So, and I think I wrote that down. Mark 14, 63, the priest tears his garments, right? Why does he do that? Because Jesus says he's the, he's, I am. Ah, okay. But now, who's tearing his garments? God is. He's tearing. He, so this this is really, I mean, really a powerful image. Is that when we think, ah, Jesus is completely abandoned by God. He's he's not. He's I mean, insofar as definitive, absolutely, from Jesus' perspective, right? He's abandoned by God. But we know he's not because when he dies, God tears his garments in anguish. Okay? That's, a, that's another thing that's happening in the tearing of the temple curtain. So, again, goes back to our lives. When we think God's abandoned us, he hasn't. And, and we're we're trusting that it's true even though we can't see it because even God mourns with us in our suffering in our deaths. He's sad. Okay? So, um, oh, okay, I, I wrote this, uh, I put this little tidbit in there. Um, does it sound like a demon is being exercised from Jesus when he, when he gives a loud cry, it's a little exegetical note 
um, Mark nine twenty six. When this is the boy, the 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 boy of the father. The disciples are trying to exercise this unclean spirit, and they can't do it. So then the father of the boy brings them to Jesus, and says, "If you are able to to help me," and Jesus is like, "What? I'm able. What's wrong with you?" And then he does, but the boy gives out a loud cry. This goes then to, it's not, Jesus doesn't have a demon, by the way. (laughs) But it goes to, again, what his death means for all people. You know, even for those who have been oppressed by the unclean spirits, Jesus is with them there. So he's, he's, um, his uh, loud cry, so in the Gospel of John, right, he exhales his Holy Spirit. Um, so when the boy gives out a loud cry, when Jesus gives up his spirit, the demon spirit's taken out, or unclean spirit's taken out, and Holy Spirit's brought in. I mean, there's this great connection between um, the exercise of the demon or the, the, the unclean, the possessed, and even Jesus' death. Yeah, Holly. Well, just your description, Yeah, with the... Uh, like if you could see God... See how it happened as God is... Yeah, right. Um, yeah, the eyes of faith. Jesus goggles. All right, the, uh, so I have a little quote there. Now, through Jesus' exorcistic death... That's not a real word, but the guy... Joel Marcus, I forgot to put his name on there. Joel Marcus wrote this nice little uh, sentence. Through, through this... Seems like uh, exorcism kind of death on the cross, a blessed apocalyptic paradox, meaning this paradox that deals with all things till the end of time, comes into being in which the radiance of the new age, that means like new creation, breaks forth out of the depths of human weaknesses and pain, and a suffering man is revealed to be the Son of God. That's a beautiful picture right there. So what's interesting, though, is... Creation comes out, uh, Genesis 1, 1. What, how is the world described, or universe described? Yeah, about form and void. Completely chaos, right? What is happening right now with Jesus' death? It is completely chaos. But out of that comes the new age, or the new creation. I don't know why he uses the, well, he uses the new age in terms of the Greek word. It's a new eon. So I think when we hear new age, right, we're a little like, wait a second, what's going on here? So um, that's how I like to kind of use the word, you know, creation. That's a, the Apostle Paul uses that word. So, um, so this is like, it's an unhinging of all creation, but in the unhinging of creation, God is actually putting it back together. So then the creation account is understood in light of the death and resurrection of Jesus, in terms of Holy Week. Which then should, since we're part of creation, 
And if creation's story is understood through Holy Week, then my story's, because I'm part of creation, then my story's also understood in terms of Holy Week, too. The vastness of it. Okay. Um, making sense of the burial. I already talked a little bit about that. Um, just a little wordplay right there. When, when uh, they're talking about Joseph of Arimathea, they use the word body, but when Pilate is used, he uses the word corpse. It's kind of distinguish between a faithful understanding and a non-faithful understanding of the body of Jesus, or this material. Because, I mean, they're, it's the same thing, right? Because, uh, well, what's the difference between the two words? Yeah, one, one has life in it and one doesn't. But, of course, now, Jesus, it's not a, a, a description of the thing itself. It's the description of what comes from it. Through the dead body, Jesus' life is springing. Paradox of paradoxes, irony of ironies. Okay, uh, oh, and then, and then that chapter ends, you know, with the Marys. That is, I'm so, I don't know how to do Marys, plural. Uh, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the, the lesser, younger, I don't know how they. Oh, you know, hang on. Yeah, okay. We miss we miss a Mary uh, or we miss Salome at the end of verse fifteen, but Mary Mag- Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. Which is, people have always been like, what in the world? Why why does James the younger not make it, but Joseph does? And where's Salome? And um, well, that was the other thing too, is that uh, Mary the mother of Joseph. Uh, and James the Younger, there, yeah, there's this, this whole connection with, is this the family of Jesus? But, you know, I don't know why would they just, he wouldn't say Mary the mother. But there's this theory as, not to get too, like, technical, nerdy here. Um, early in the gospel, Jesus' approach is, hey, your mother's outside and your family. And what does Jesus say? Here, my mother is, yeah, my mother is, is the word of God. So some people think that it actually is Mary, the mother of Jesus. But Mark's really making the point that it's not the, it's not the biological connection that's most important. It's the spiritual connection. I don't know, maybe. I don't know. And, uh, and John, that Jesus said to John, that's your mother. Yeah, right. So, so again... You have to understand why, why is Mark writing it this way. And uh, that's why a lot of people think, his, like, in terms of like history or historical, John is, is kind of the more historical because of the fact that you know, Mary and John were at the foot of the, I mean, they were there. Um, but in Mark, no one's there. They're, they're far away. So, again... We have to be critical thinkers about is Mark, because a lot of people will say, "Oh, you know, they don't even agree. With, the Gospels don't even agree with each other." I'm like, "What? That, that's a statement based on you've already made your made up your mind." Because if you read the whole Gospel of Mark, you would realize that he's writing uh, he's writing the story to emphasize a, a 
something. And John is not writing the, 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 to write it the same way. He's writing something different. Okay. But, um, the, uh, but the point, though, about this comment, though, is to realize that they, they, they saw where he was laid, which means, well, I mean, they just, they just, just kind of a tidbit of information or, or is something else going to happen? So it's another way to propel the story forward, which, of course, now we, <laughs> it takes one verse to find out, are they going to do something about it? Yes, they do. Then on early the next, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome. So now mother of James is back because that's, you know, get his story straight. Um, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. All right, so, I mean, this is all important for us because the first day of the week, this is the first day of new creation. Okay, so the old age has passed. So, and now we have this new day, which has been called the eighth day. The eighth day is uh, resurrection day. Um, and we don't have any more night. It's kind of unusual. We see that in the Gospel of John, actually. So, Okay, but that's beside the point again. We're not talking about the Gospel of John. All right, so, uh, okay, great. So, so this is something, too, where the story ends. I mean, uh, the crucifixion ends with something that's already going to propel it into something else. So there's this element of hope of the resurrection. And, of course, in Mark 16, we, we know he's resurrected. But the point is, our lives, how, why, Jesus, why Mark is telling us this, is that at, even at the end of our lives, there's this element of, of hey, I know where you're, you've been laid, where you, you've been, your, your body has been put to rest. And I need to know that because I might be coming back to it. Which, of course, Jesus knows where you're buried or where you're laid to rest because he's going to come back. Now the, the flip the script is flipped, right? Uh, no longer are we going to his tomb, but he's coming to ours. So there's a reversal there. Any questions about anything? Krista? <laughs> I just want, want to be from you was a little bit eye-opener in this way, that the Gospels are written many, many years later. You know, therefore, I think sometimes the stories are a little bit different. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, so, so each gospel, yeah, so Mark is theoretically the earliest gospel, which would have been kind of written when, you know, like, so for instance, um, I always think about World War II growing up because World War II veterans have, they're all kind of dead now. I mean, pretty much. Now, when I was growing up and I was a teenager, they were still alive. And when I was in my 20s, I should have thought to myself, oh, man, I better start writing this stuff down or else I'm not going to hear it. That's kind of the gospel mark, that, that kind of time where you have the people who have lived through these experiences now are dying and they're starting to write these things down because they can't preach anymore. I mean, they're, they're not around. So, um, and because of that then, but of course these gospel writers... They're writers. I mean, they're not, again, we can't apply 21st century 
histor historicity to first century experience. They, they are interested in telling a true story, but they're trying to tell it to people that need to hear it in a certain way. So yeah, they're, they're going to tell it differently. Because the marking community needs to hear it this way. They didn't need to know about um, the, the, the healing at the pool of Siloam. You know, we hear in the Gospel of John. You know, they need to hear that. Um, just trying to think here. You know, each Gospel... I don't, I don't know if Gospel Mark, but like Matthew has things only for Matthew, right? Luke has things only in, in Luke, like the prodigal son. And then John has only things in John. And that's because those first people who heard the story... They needed to hear those things for themselves. But a great one, they started writing it down now. Now it becomes available for everybody. And uh, it's a good thing. I mean, the differences are good. I, I, like, I like how, I think it's so interesting. And Mary was living with John. So I think that there was a story from first hand. Oh, yeah, right. And well, the Gospel of Luke is very explicit about that, right? The Gospel writer Luke says, Hey, I went to go research all this, and I asked all these people about this, so that Theophilus, Theophilus you could have a a dependable account. So we know that you know he probably went to go to Elizabeth. He probably went to Mary. You know, he went went to all the you know the apostles, and which is great. I'm, I'm uh, always amazed that the Jews are don't. Well, a lot of them do. I mean, a lot of them did. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean. Uh, Acts chapter 2 and 4, I mean, there's thousands of them becoming Christians. And so, um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, now things are different, right? I mean, now uh, you, you talk about conversions of, of Jewish people. It's a lot more complicated because of, well, tradition, yeah, fiddle on the roof. Um but also, too, because of uh, Christian history, you know? So, I mean, we have to be sensitive to that when we talk to people who, who might understand uh, Christians in a particular way. But I think Jesus is the best example for us. First of all, Jesus was a Jew. Um, and then second of all, for Jesus, it's really about understanding Scripture. Now, there's a, there is a, uh, within theological circles, there's this notion that um, you know, Christians shouldn't have the primary say of the Old Testament. Or we shouldn't Christianize the Old Testament. Well, that, that's silly, because Jesus does. I mean, Jesus takes the Old Testament and says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. Jesus is the ultimate authority when it comes to Bible, the Bible. Um, but that's the point, though. Jesus is trying to unveil or lift the veil off the eyes of his, his community. Uh, and, yeah. And, and so what's interesting, too, is I would encourage every, everybody, if you ever, you know, if you have a Jewish friend uh, who might actually, you know, know the Bible, you know, there's some, you know, um, just talk to them about how they understand you know, do they do they still look forward to the Messiah? You know, some Jews do, some Jews don't. Some Jews think that Jesus was the Messiah for the Gentiles, but not for the 
the Jewish nation. You know, so you can find that out and listen because, first of all, you might, might learn something about the Old Testament you didn't know. Like there's a, 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 a former Jewish rabbi who's a Lutheran pastor, and, uh, you know, he was, I mean, it was so interested in reading the Gospel of John with him. Holy smokes. So, <laughs> but he was, uh, I mean, he, he, the things he, were, he was teaching us wasn't because he was a Christian, it was because he was a rabbi. It's really interesting. But um, again, Krista, you bring up the whole point, though. You would think people who would see it should see it, but they don't. And that's why the Gospel of Mark is very kind of profound. You have a Gentile and a hypocrite who get Jesus before everybody else. <laughs> Which I really, I just, chuckle, because that's very good for me. Because I'm a Gentile and a hypocrite. That's why. Let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.